This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today, we're going to focus on some bread and butter emergency medicine, and that's asthma. Over 18 million adults in the U.S. have asthma, and there's over 1.5 million visits every year to emergency departments. We're going to see these patients on a routine basis, and we need to be comfortable with how to manage these patients. First, we'll look a little bit at the background, and then we're going to look at the patient with severe asthma exacerbation, as well as some mimics that we need to keep on our radar. Let's get to the background. Our first goal is to quickly establish the severity of their current presentation and the history of severe exacerbations like need for ICU admission or prior intubation. We also need to identify any treatable precipitate in the patient. This could include things like pneumonia, an upper respiratory tract infection, reflux, exposure to irritants, or any other allergies. The form of asthma that we're most concerned about is status asthmaticus. This is the life-threatening form of asthma in which progressively worsening reactive airways are unresponsive to our usual therapies, leading to pulmonary insufficiency. On your exam, most of these patients will present with shortness of breath, some wheezing, they may have cough, and they may have some sputum production. You may also see prolonged expiration, and once those patients begin to have more of a moderate to severe exacerbation, they may have accessory muscle use. Signs of impending ventilatory failure include first, paradoxical respiration, where the chest deflates and the abdomen protrudes during inspiration, patients with altered mental status, hypoxia, or patients who aren't moving air at all and have that silent chest. You should strongly think about getting an x-ray in those patients with fever, worsening symptoms, poor response to medications or therapies, that patient with their first episode of wheezing, or chest pain. Honestly, if they're in the ED and they're having a severe asthma exacerbation, you should probably get a chest x-ray. Now let's get to management. If you have that patient with a mild exacerbation, give them 6 to 12 puffs of an albuterol MDI. However, if you have that patient with a severe exacerbation, put them on continuous nebulization for an hour. This decreases the chance of admission when compared to intermittent dosing. Combine that with ipratropium or your duoneb. This combination reduces hospitalization rates and improves lung function. Steroids are also going to be needed. You have a variety of different choices. In pediatric patients, dexamethasone is going to be your go-to steroid. However, in adults, think about prednisone, and in that severe exacerbation, give them solumedrol or methylprednisolone. Let's pivot to some mimics. The first one is anaphylaxis, which presents with similar pathophysiology as asthma with that hyperactive immune response and the bronchoconstriction. You need to think about this in a patient with a history of exposure to an allergen, if they have involvement of two organ systems, or a known allergic exposure with low blood pressure or involvement of the airway or respiratory systems. These patients need immediate resuscitation with epinephrine, as well as steroids, IV fluids, and histamine antagonists. But your go-to treatment is going to be that IM epinephrine. Our second mimic is COPD. This has been classically thought to be irreversible and associated with tobacco use. Like asthma, it's an obstructive airway disease. There's one study, however, that makes this a little bit challenging for us. In this study, 15% of patients with COPD had features of asthma, while 15% of patients with asthma 
also had COPD. In the ED, look for a prior history of COPD exacerbations or tobacco use. Basically, your treatments are going to be very similar. Heart failure is our next mimic. This can present with wheezing with lung fluid accumulation. Some patients will have no known prior diagnosis of heart failure upon their initial presentation, and they may present acutely with respiratory distress or with chronic worsening orthopnea and dyspnea, which is the most common presentation. Look on exam for rails, S3 heart sounds, and elevated JVP and peripheral edema. They may have a history of dyspnea with exertion or with lying flat. If they have an acute exacerbation, give them venodilators and positive pressure ventilation. Our fourth mimic is PE. This is not always an easy diagnosis, but we see these patients on a fairly regular basis. Close to one in 10 patients with PE can have wheezing on exam. This might be due to some vasoactive mediators that are released in response to an embolus. Our key is to evaluate for PE risk factors in the history, and we need to think about it if they don't improve with standard asthma medications. If the patient presents with hemodynamic compromise, roll the ultrasound in there and look for right ventricular strain. Our imaging modality of choice is going to be a CTPE study, and treatment includes anticoagulation. The next mimic is foreign body aspiration. Any small object in the bronchioles from aspiration can result in focal lung findings, and even worse, respiratory distress. The patients with greatest risk for this include children, older adults, and mentally disabled patients. Patients can present with acute cough or wheezing, but the classic history is lack of upper respiratory symptoms or prior wheezing, and then sudden onset of respiratory distress or wheezing. Choking followed by cough is present in up to 75% of pediatric patients with some form of foreign body aspiration. Chest x-ray can help both erect and lateral views, which might show hyperinflation. If you're concerned about aspiration, the patient will need bronchoscopy even with a negative chest x-ray. Angioedema is this localized swelling in locations with loose connective tissue like the face, the oropharynx, the wall, extremities, and the genitalia. There are a variety of different causes, but you can break these down into mast cell or histamine-mediated and bradykinin-mediated. Histamine-mediated angioedema can present with other allergic signs like urticaria, pruritus, or they may resemble that patient with anaphylaxis. Bradykinin-induced angioedema is not associated with urticaria or the pruritus. This form is the cause in ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema as well as hereditary angioedema. If the patient looks like they have anaphylaxis, then treat them the same way as you would with an anaphylaxis patient. If the patient presents with oropharyngeal edema, they will probably need airway protection, and you need to assume a difficult airway. Drug-related wheezing is most commonly associated with aspirin. Keep in mind that Samter's triad of asthma, nasal polyps, and some form of sensitivity to aspirin or another NSAID. Central airway obstruction in the trachea or the main stem bronchi includes bronchogenic carcinomas, tracheal strictures, sarcoidosis, and a goiter. These patients usually won't present acutely, and they may notice other symptoms, including weight loss. If that obstruction is fixed, wheezing is most likely constant and fixed. Asthmatic wheezing usually occurs after some form of an exposure to an allergen or a URI. Further evaluation really relies on your history and exam. Look closely for risk factors for cancer, symptoms consistent with hyperthyroidism, or a history of intubation. Chest CT will most likely identify the source and site of obstruction, but the patient has to lie flat. 
Further consultation is required if your thinking central airway obstruction is the case with bronchoscopy. Vocal cord dysfunction involves paradoxical involuntary closure of the vocal cords during inspiration. This may result in wheezing or strider and even respiratory distress. Wheezing in these patients is usually inspiratory or inspiratory and expiratory, unlike asthmatic wheezing. This is due to forced expiration, stenting open the cords, and decreasing the obstruction. They may present after exposure to a stressor, inhaled irritants, or even exercise. Risk factors for this include prior intubation or neck surgery. Diagnosis is usually confirmed through laryngoscopy, and you can treat this through several maneuvers in the ED. You can have the patient pants, blow through a straw, jaw thrust while breathing, nose-to-mouth breathing, or if the patient presents in respiratory distress, you can give them ketamine and some form of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Those were a lot of mimics. So how do we differentiate these mimics from asthma and also stabilize the patient? Well, your first goal is to assess for life threats and then provide emergent interventions. If you're thinking the patient has asthma, give them bronchodilators and corticosteroids. Once their treatment has been initiated and you have some time, then go back for your history and exam and look for mimics. As we talked about, there are a lot of different causes of wheezing and potential mimics for asthma, and you need to think about these to prevent anchoring bias. Red flags for other conditions include no prior history of asthma, a prior history of really mild asthma, or poor response to normal asthmatic treatments. What should you consider if the patient doesn't respond to your normal nebulized therapies and steroids? You can think about using IV magnesium for its bronchodilatory effect, 2 grams up to 6 grams over an hour. Also give the patient IV fluids for their significant and sensible losses. Subdissociative dose IV ketamine at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, even followed by an infusion, can help with that bronchodilatory effect. Finally, think about using IM epinephrine 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams. Severe asthmatics have a hard time getting the inhaled beta agonists into the small airways, but parenteral epinephrine will get into the circulation and gets to where it needs to be to provide support. If the patient's hypotensive and still decompensating, give them IV epinephrine. It's possible that the IM epinephrine just isn't circulating in these patients who are hypotensive. Now, we haven't talked too much about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, but this can be a significant game changer, especially in that patient who does not improve with maximal medical management. In these patients, you need to think about the risks and benefits of positive pressure ventilation and intubation. A common teaching is when you're thinking about intubating an asthmatic patient, wait, wait some more, and then continue to wait, but don't wait too long. If you're thinking about intubation, at least consider non-invasive positive pressure ventilation first, especially if the patient has normal mental status. Remember, when you're putting a piece of plastic in the trachea, this doesn't really help these patients with their airway resistance. In fact, it increases airway resistance and the dead space. The reason we consider intubation is because of respiratory fatigue, and BiPAP can provide exactly the pressure support these patients need. When we're using BiPAP, we need to constantly reassess these patients and have all intubation equipment ready at the bedside. The benefit is all in that pressure support. I like to start these patients at 15 over 5. If they continue to have worsening decompensation, I increase that inspiratory pressure to maybe 17 or 18 over 5. Most importantly, continue providing inline nebulization with a beta-2 agonist in the ipratropium. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation only allows us to temporarily rest the patient's respiratory muscles, 
it doesn't solve the underlying pathophysiology. Our next question is, while we try to avoid it if possible, how do we optimize intubation in these patients? Well, don't forget no DSAT with a nasal cannula. This buys you a longer apneic period while you're trying to intubate. Ketamine is a great agent for sedation because of its bronchodilatory effects, and consider using rocuronium for a paralytic. Its longer duration of paralysis will help you with ventilation. And that brings us to the ventilator. What settings should we use after intubation, and what's permissive hypercapnia? Well, permissive hypercapnia allows for the CO2 to rise and the pH to drop in order to avoid autopeep and barotrauma. This involves a respiratory rate set at 6 to 8 breaths per minute, a tidal volume of 6 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight, and a peak inspiratory flow of 90 to 120 liters per minute. All of these increase the IDE ratio to avoid autopeep and barotrauma. If we're still having issues, you need to troubleshoot the ventilator. Remember that peak pressure is the maximum amount of pressure sensed by the ventilator in the ventilator circuit and doesn't necessarily reflect what is going on in the lungs. We care more about that plateau pressure, which is the pressure seen in the lower airways. Shoot for a plateau pressure of less than 30 millimeters per mercury. Ventilator asynchrony can occur when patients are tachypneic and breathing against the ventilator. They then start to breast stack and develop more autopeep. The solution for this is to keep the patient paralyzed and appropriately sedated. If the plateau pressures are still running high, you need to think about a couple things. First, reduce that respiratory rate. Second, you can call your anesthesiologist for inhalational anesthetics in the operating room. Finally, you need to think about ECMO for these patients. What happens when the patient continues to decompensate while they're on the ventilator? Well, fortunately, we have a couple of mnemonics to help us. And the first one is DOPES, which is our differential diagnosis. This looks at displaced endotracheal tube, obstruction anywhere along the circuit, pneumothorax, equipment failure like a ventilator malfunction or disconnect, or stacked breaths, which is what we're primarily concerned about in asthmatic patients. The DOTS mnemonic is our fix, which is basically a summary. So for D, disconnect the ventilator and put light pressure on the chest for forceful exhalation. O is oxygen 100% bag valve mask. Look for chest rise, listen and feel for cuff leak. T is tube position and patency. Pass the bougie or suction all the way through the tube to remove any obstruction. T is for tweak the vent. You may need to decrease the respiratory rate further. And finally, S is sonography and chest x-ray, looking for that pneumothorax. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.